Uh, well, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity um, to actually get up here uh, this morning and testify for the Lord. That's the great privilege that any preacher has. He can get up, he can name the name Jesus, he can speak of God's great salvation, he can speak of God's love, and he can speak of those marvellous things in eternity which we sometimes call the attributes of God. Um, they're the wonderful things about God, which uh, I also have to thank the musicians for bringing some of those points to everyone's attention and you having the opportunity to actually verbalise those wonderful eternal truths about our loving God. Um, yeah, I wanted to just add to that final song, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before, O my soul. Worship his holy name. I want to add uh, another element to that for us to think about this morning. Because this element is, yeah, it's to do with the, the amazing attributes of our grandfather in heaven. But it's also to do with how we're involved within that. This morning, I'm, I'm going to use a theological term once, and then you can forget it. It's, the theological term is called um, making the spiritual things flesh. It's incarnating the word. You hear that? Now forget it. But, but I'll tell you what it is. It's to do with those marvellous things in heaven actually being brought to earth. It's to do with what God promised Israel in Ephesians, it's not Ephesians, in um, uh, way back in the Old Testament anyway, in uh, Exodus, Exodus 3. He said to them at the burning bush, remember, or sometimes called the unburning bush where Moses was there, God said, I am coming down. And then he gave two reasons. He says, one was to be with you people and the other one was to bring them salvation. In the case of Israel, it was salvation from slavery in Egypt. But this morning, I'm, I want to speak about that, that, that level of God's reality, if you like to call it that. One of his attributes, he is faithful to his promise. You know, you and I, uh, someone mentioned it earlier on, I think it might have been Philippe, about the authorities. Sometimes we get bamboozled by the authorities because they're not really faithful to their promises, are they? Generally speaking, the authorities that we know in the world are capricious. The, a caprice is actually just setting people up with promises and then breaking those promises when, when it suits you. Now, God never ever has done anything like that. God keeps his promises. And we've had those two beautiful songs. I'm going to ask um, Hannah and Francis to lead us in one final song, another one. And it's to do with this theme that God is faithful. Faithful in everything, not just his promises. And the song that um, we're going to be led into actually deals three elements of God's faithfulness. It deals with that. And it's not just me getting up here talking about it, which I'm going to do a little bit, 
but it's you actually endorsing it when you actually sing the words of those verses. You see, God is, is faithful to his promises. He's faithful in everything. The first verse that you're going to sing in Great is Thy Faithfulness. The first verse is a confession. It's you acknowledging as a believer and as a, a believer in Jesus, in God the Father, in the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of God's Word, the Bible, that from these sources you are actually making a confession that you have taken into yourself this great truth that our loving and gracious and merciful Heavenly Father is faithful. And you confess that in that first verse. From the basis of what you'll learn, it, it, to, to many, uh, to a great extent, I should say, your mind is involved in this, and that is true, where it says to worship and to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, your whole strength. So your mind is involved in that first verse. And it's the second verse where this whole business of incarnating the word or making the word real in the flesh and blood reality of our world. That's where it comes in. And this is the, we're probably only just got a, enough time this morning to actually deal with that second verse of the hymn. In, there, in that verse, um, you actually confess when you sing, you're praying to our Lord in heaven. And one of the little phrases in there, it says, there is no shadow or turning with thee. That God is there, he speaks, his word. Well, use an old expression I used to hear years ago, you can take God's word to the bank. It is so valuable. He speaks. And, and we confess there again, in that second verse, that there is no shadow or turning with thee. Now, when we move in along in that verse, it, it speaks about something else, about this whole matter of bringing the word down into the real world that you and I know, the world of material, space and time. And it says there that the sun, moon and stars, well, you're going to sing this, the sun, moon and stars in their courses above join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great mercy, great faithfulness, mercy and love. And we're going to sing that. And brothers and sisters, I plead with you to really mean that, to make that a time of a movement in the spirit and not just some sort of thing that's happening here in the here and now that you are actually communicating to your Father in heaven and you're giving testimony. We haven't got much, much time to spend on the third verse, um, but it, it does actually claim, in a sense, uh, in the final part of it where it speaks about blessings all mine and 10,000 beside. And God is faithful to the promise that those blessings are going to be poured out, uh, already being poured out, but are going to be poured out in abundance on us. And we praise him for that. So we have the three sections there of confession, first of all, of what we know about God, and then the fact that we're prepared to speak up and, in a sense, 
join with all nature too because it speaks about, in, the, in Psalm 19, it speaks about that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky displays what his hands have made. One day tells a story to the next. One night shares knowledge with the next without talking. They still testify. And without words and their voices are being heard. Yet their sound has gone out into the entire world, their message to the ends of the earth. What does that sound like? That sounds like you and me in our spirit, standing there with Jesus just as before he ascended to heaven. And when he said, go, where? <laughs> you know, to the ends of the earth. Actually, this expression here from Psalm 19, but Jesus in Matthew 28 says, go, to the ends of the earth, to all nations, and make disciples. And then, of course, he goes on, and what he describes is your testimony. All right. So there you have it. The Bible evidence, God keeps his promise. Absolutely no caprice. Plain honesty. Speaks a word, and he does it. The first, of course, the big promise was for the Saviour the one who would come to be the saviour of the world. Uh, you might, well, we go right back to, I'm not going to read these texts, I'm just going to cite them. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, about the fact that there would be someone who'd come and would stand up against the works of the devil and that would actually bring salvation to God's people. We, he, keeps, he kept that promise because 4,000 years later, that one turned up, didn't he? And he went to the cross for us. And that promise, it was just multiplied through the, throughout the Old Testament. Abraham, um, in, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, he was promised a, a wonderful privilege. You sometimes wonder, it would be great to live back in those times and actually be open to those wonderful promises of God. That that seed of God's woman, the one who would come and would stand the devil and would uh, do it on our behalf at the cross and would bring salvation, would actually come through Abraham's family. And God kept that promise. And then it goes on. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and right through, right virtually through to the end of the Old Testament. From one of the last books was the book of Ze Zechariah. And uh, there was a picture there of God saving his people in the way he saved uh, Joshua the high priest from the condemnation of the devil. And at the end of God actually bringing this salvation, keeping his promise, he said that he, as far as Israel was concerned, the people of God, in the final part of the verse there in chapter 3 of Zechariah in verse 9, he said, I will bring my servant. This is the end of the Bible we're talking about now. I will bring my servant, the branch. Do we recognise who the branch was? Raise your hand if you do. Yes, the branch was to be Jesus. He would come in God's name. It says, I will bring my servant, the branch. And listen to this, brothers and sisters. He says, and remove the iniquity 
of this land in a single day. Did he do that? Do you believe he did that? Raise your hands if you believe he did. He did that. Thank you, brothers and sisters. And then, of course, there's lots of, it's not easy to understand the word of God. We struggle with it. But it was something else was even promised for those who believed in God and who believed in his promises and trusted him. He said again in John 16 and verse 13, through Jesus, he, he said these words, when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. So we need to know the word. We need to understand the character of God to the extent we can. We need to pour ourselves into it and into his service. That's not enough. We also, according to John 16 and other parts of Jesus' teaching, we need the spirit to open that word and to open that great reality to us. And we praise God for keeping that promise too. Now, I have to thank uh, different other ones this morning. The, the music, those last two songs, absolutely spot on for this message. Uh, Camello introduced everything this morning and he cited Ephesians chapter 2. Got it? <laughs> I got the right one. That's good. In Ephesians 2, that great salvation that was promised, first of all, 4,000 years ago in, in Eden, was actually outlined uh, for us. I'm going to read a little bit from that. Um, when, when that happened, there was, there was a reality put before us that I want you to think about in terms of our great and holy God and his faithfulness to us. I used to be a pastor. I laid down that ministry I turned 75, and that was 10 years ago, nearly now. Um, I had a lot to do with, I don't want to put a pall on this meeting this morning, but I had a lot to do with dead bodies um, because I had to do all these funerals. And even though the, well, the guys in the funeral parlour say, they sort of like to paint things up to make them not look quite so bad, but they never succeed. Every time I saw the remains of a human being where that spirit from God, that life had gone out of them, I grieved. I honestly do. And even the memory of it now makes me to some extent grieve. We're revolted by death. It's an enemy. And as far as God is concerned, in a spiritual way, it's a million times more offensive to him than what we experience in this life when we mourn someone we love who we've lost. And yet God, you think, I, I was so pleased that the funeral director paid all these people to actually handle these dead bodies. I never had to go near them physically, only saw them. But God revolted a million times over from a spiritual death, which was the reality of every one of us before we came to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. God reached down into that mess, that spiritual death state 
that each one of us here was in before we found Christ. And I'm going to read that part. Uh, I know Camelo only cited it, and I was a bit disappointed he didn't read it because it meant I wouldn't, I'd just be able to go back to it. But I'm going to read this part. It's in Ephesians 2, and it starts in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. And it's, as it goes over into verse 2, as for you, the ones that God had was planning even in eternity to rescue, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That condition I just described a few minutes ago was just so much worse. What you and I were like before we come to know Jesus. And in which you used to, to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now uh, at work in those who were disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. There's a picture. Him reaching down into that situation, which we see in the flesh sometimes when someone dies, reaching down into that situation, the hand, the holy, mighty hand of God into your life and my life. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Point I'm making it again, I know. Carmelo already introduced us to this. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incorruptible riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. Brothers and sisters, we must think about the faithfulness of God in terms like that. Holy, magnificent, eternal, almighty, all-knowing, all-present. Our gracious Heavenly Father actually reached into that mess which was you and me and made something beautiful out of it. Isn't that wonderful? Is our God faithful? Amen, he is. All right. Um, I've said quite a bit about the biblical and the actual side of this, of what reasons we've got out there if we just stir up our minds and our efforts to find out just how faithful our God has been. But I just want to just change pace a little bit here. 
you know, we, I mentioned about the second part of that hymn, to testify, join with all nature and testify. Um, do you know, it speaks, in Psalm 19, you're familiar with that? Heavens declare the glory of God, the work of the sky, the expanse is telling. One day after another brings forth praise. That's nature. That's the, that's the creation of God. Uh, most of it is inanimate. But the difference is that you and I are animate in the sense that we have life within us. We are living beings. And as far as all living beings in the world is concerned, we actually stand alone, you and me as human beings, because we were made in the image of this God we've just been talking about it's so wonderful we're made in his image we're giving we're given abilities and attributes which are way beyond the sun moon and stars and their courses above singing praise to god we have an ability that it's infinitely more than that because we're being we have been made in god's image and when it says the sun moon and stars and their courses above join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy and love. See yourself in that as above it, as with it, but above it, doing the same thing and exercising these abilities we're given because we're made in God's image. All right, so now I'm, we're actually moving the initiative away from the pulpit here out to you now. It's, it, that's what's happening here, brothers and sisters, and I'm going to start calling for some help in a minute. Because in, in the scriptures, um, it mentions uh, uh, the early Christian church was sort of modelled after the Jewish synagogue because all the original Christians were Jews. You realise that, don't you? And so as far as organisational structures were concerned, they did things very, very much the same way as the Jews did. And we've got a case of two tremendously um, important, if you like, Christian evangelists of the first century uh, actually going to the synagogue on a Saturday morning. And those two Christians uh, were called Paul and Barnabas. And the synagogue was in a town called Antioch. And I'm going to, I'm going to read to you now what was done there. And this became a bit of a practice or quite a practice in the Christian churches, and we even still do it today. All right, so Paul went into the synagogue with his friend Barnabas. Uh, in Acts chapter 13, verse 15 and 16, it says, After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to Paul and Barnabas, saying, If you sending this message out now. If you have any word of encouragement for the people, brothers, say it. All right. And then what happened was this. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Brothers and sisters, I can't offer you 
the Apostle Paul or Barnabas or anyone like that this morning. But still, as preacher of the day, I would stop preaching and invite someone from the congregation with these words to testify and praise God with a word of encouragement for the people. And instead of Paul, I'm going to invite my lovely wife to come and do that. Okay, wasn't so difficult after all, was it? <laughs> yeah, so sorry that Don couldn't bring the Apostle Paul up here, but I'm here instead. So I just want to this morning testify to God's faithfulness in my life. <coughs> I just need to give you a little bit of a background first. Um, I grew up in a, a Christian home, went to church, went to Sunday school. My mother played the organ. And I can't ever remember a time when I didn't believe in God and in Jesus and his sacrifice. And during my teenage years, I started to uh, attend a youth group where um, there was quite a lot of emphasis on, you know, serving God and that type of thing. But then in my, when I was only 17 and a half, and I use this as an excuse, I met Dom, okay? <laughs> We met at a local dance and um, even though we hadn't lived very far apart, we lived on either side of the Murray River. I was in New South Wales, he was in Victoria. He had spent his high school years and then a year at university away from home. So even though I knew of the family, I didn't know him personally until we met after his first year at university at a dance. So we started to keep company together and um, it was well, was sort of love at first sight. And what I didn't know, though, at that time was that while Don was away, his parents had become very much influenced by the Jehovah's Witnesses. They had welcomed the Witnesses into their home. And as Don decided then not to go back to university, he became influenced by the JWs as well. And so I became influenced through him. We both became convinced that this was the truth. We joined the JWs and were married in 1962. And if you want to do your maths there, that means that we've been now married for 60 years, which is a long time. <laughs> so, like being married, you have your honeymoon period and becoming part of a cult, you go also through a honeymoon period as well, thinking that everything is just wonderful, everything is perfect. But then, after a few years, you start to question things. I was very much in influenced by the environment and the isolation that comes from being part of a cult because you are 
very much discouraged from having any friends who are not also cult members. And even those of your own family, you're not encouraged to associate with um, if they don't happen to be part of the cult. There was also the constant reinforcing of Jehovah's Witness doctrine. We attended five hours of meetings each week, went door to door every week, and went to three different assemblies or conventions every year. The other thing that helped with the isolation was the fact that we didn't celebrate Christmas, nor Easter, nor birthdays, Mother's or Father's Day. And these, of course, are the times when the wider family meet together. But, of course, we couldn't do that because um, mo most of my, or all of my family were no longer Jehovah, weren't Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I missed out on that. During this time, I used to read the scripture from Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, where Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Well, I would read that scripture, and I remember one saying to Don, but it's not like that. It's not like that. I felt burdened and... Um, by all the expectations that were put upon me, the constant need to prove that I was good enough. Toward the end of um, the 60s, another area of concern was their propensity to set dates for the end of the world. They'd done this several times in the past and now they were again setting the year 1975 as the time for the Battle of Armageddon. I knew from the Bible that this was wrong because Jesus himself had warned about this in Matthew 24:36. So Don and I tried to warn other Jehovah's Witnesses and say that this was wrong to do this, but we were made to feel like second-class JWs because we didn't go along with the, with, well, basically the cult teaching, the party line. When 1975 passed, it was obvious that they had been wrong and we now expected the leadership of the Watchtower Society to apologise for this, but they didn't. Thus began a gradual awakening to the fact that this could not be the truth. Then in June 1985, the leaders made a change to the baptism vows. Up to then, they used the scriptural formula of being baptised in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, even though they didn't have the correct doctrine behind this, they at least used the right words. Now they were changing this to being baptised in the name of the Father, Son and the Spirit-directed organisation of Jehovah's Witnesses. Now this was like the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back and we knew we could no longer stay JWs. But the question was, what do we do now? because we've been taught, of course, that all the churches were false religion and we were told that if we left the JW organisation, there was nowhere to go. But by God's grace, he led us to a group here in Brisbane because we'd now moved from um, Victoria to Queensland, best thing we ever did. God graciously led us to a group called the Cult Busters, where we were given help in sorting out false and true doctrine 
And so in January 1986, we were directed to a Bible-believing church at Holland Park. This was the first time that we had been in a church for 25 years and it was a difficult thing to do. But we went to that church believing that God was um, directing us there. And during that first service, they sung the old hymn, How Great Thou Art. And I knew then that God had brought me home. I sat there while they sung that hymn and I cried because I knew that even though I had been unfaithful for 25 years, God had been faithful and he had brought me home. Then through right teaching, I began to understand the truth of Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, where it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And in a short time, I had made my commitment to Jesus as Lord and Saviour and underwent a true Christian baptism. An additional testimony to God's faithfulness was the fulfilment of Jesus' promise in Matthew 19, where he promised, everyone who has left brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. For when you leave a cult, you lose all your family and friends who are in the cult. They will have nothing more to do with you. And of course, you don't really have any other friends much because you have been told not to make friends with those who aren't Jehovah's Witnesses. So really, you are friendless after you leave a cult, except that we did have the few people that we got to know through this cult buster organisation. On top of this, at the same time as leaving the Jehovah's Witness, we also had to put our business into liquidation and our home was sold and by the bank. So we were really friendless, homeless and broke. <laughs> but God began to bring us back together again. We soon had many new Christian friends who prayed for us and upheld us. And we had one particular couple who we'd go to visit them and they'd have a little box of groceries for us to take home. So these were beautiful things that God did within our life. We were both able to get work, rent a home, and through these tough times, we began to learn what it really meant to rely on God and to experience the fulfilment of Jesus' promise. After leaving the cult, I was really despondent and angry and felt that 25 years of my life had just gone down the gully trap. Yet he showed me that even that experience could be used for good, and for several years, we were able to help many ex-JWs to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. My prayer during those first few years of leaving the cult was that the Lord might be gracious to me and at least give me 25 years to experience new life in Jesus. And now I can testify to God's goodness and faithfulness because now it's 37 years since God delivered us out of darkness into his wonderful light.
I'm just going to put a little um, sub-note on Lillian's testimony there. Um, and I want to go back to the Bible again with regard to it. So really, we had come out of darkness into his marvellous light, as Lillian read. Amen. Yeah. Have we all had that experience? Come out of darkness into his marvellous light. Um, when Jesus turned up there in the first century, it was just like strobe lights everywhere. The light that came from Jesus Christ, when he said he was the light of the world, it was just remarkable. And so much so that uh, there was a, the greatest of all the Jewish prophets, he was called John the Baptist, greatest ever, Jesus said, greatest of all those prophets. And John the Baptist had a whole lot of disciples following him. They were sitting there in Jerusalem one day and uh, Jesus walked by. You all know what John said. I'm going to read about that because there's two people involved here. One is called Andrew and the other guy is called Peter. Uh, one of the two who heard uh, John speak when he said, see the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now one of the two that heard this and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. That's the words of John 1.42. Andrew brought Peter to Christ. You ever heard this expression? Bringing someone to Christ? That's you when you actually introduce Jesus to an unbeliever. Maybe your brother, cousin, whoever. You actually do, biblically speaking, you bring them to Christ. Now, so there was Lillian and I, very much like um, Andrew. And in those days, back in the 1980s, I'm, it's terrible, isn't it, when you confess that you go back that far. But back, but back in the 1980s, there was a very popular movement called Andrew Ministry or The Andrew Ministry. Can anyone remember that? We used to talk about it a lot. Yeah, the Andrew ministry. And Andrew was this guy here, you know, Simon Peter's brother. And what the Andrew ministry meant was that you don't just waltz off and leave everyone behind you. You go back to the people that you've actually been sorted out from. And in our case, it was the Jehovah's Witnesses. And Lillian and I joined the cult busters, as Lillian mentioned before, lady from the AOG up at Garden City, used to head it up, Jan Grunewald. And we actually engaged in that Andrew ministry for the next few years, probably the next 11 years, I'd say. And we figured that, okay, this picture of Andrew in the Bible, it, it is a picture. It doesn't say, thou shalt conduct an Andrew ministry. It doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't make a rule out of it. It's just something that's there in the Bible. And we thought, hey, this is good to learn from. And we got moving with that Andrew-type ministry. And uh, I have to cut off our time now. I was going to demonstrate one or two of the things we used to do in, in helping Jehovah's Witnesses to Christ. And, but we can do that another time. Um, but we went back to the Jehovah's Witnesses we shared the true Jesus to bring them to Christ. 
testified, in other words, to the people that we'd been just booted out of, in a sense. And we helped quite a few of them to Jesus, to come to Christ. Over that period of 11 years, took us not a big lot of figures. We can't boast a great big lot of figures. But some, some were helped to faith in Christ, and we rejoice in that. And in that too, just adding to Lillian's testimony, we can say again, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. And I'm not going to say anything more. That's the end of it, as far as I'm concerned. You can actually stand up and you can actually sing the conclusion for me. (laughs) 